The modern church is immersed in a competitive, polarised and status-driven society. It's hard to have conversations about important issues when so many are defensive and unwilling to learn. Too often Christians fall into these same traps. The health and witness of the church urgently depend on recovering an essential biblical virtue, humility. Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm quoting there from the publicity for a new InterVarsity Press IVP book from the States by Dennis Edwards, who is my very special guest on the podcast this time. He's here to talk about humility and his new book from IVP is called Humility Illuminated, The Biblical Path Back to Christian Character. Dennis is Associate Professor of New Testament as well as Vice President for Church Relations and Dean of North Park Seminary in Chicago. He's worked in urban ministry for over three decades, including serving as a church planter in Brooklyn and Washington, D.C. And here he is, Dennis. Hi, welcome to the show. Well, hello, and thank you, Brent. I really am grateful and glad to be with you. I'm grateful and glad that you're here. You've got your cup of tea, so hopefully we can... (laughs) We can have a great discussion about this. Now, why do you think that the church in the States, and I'm going to extend that to the West, I, I, I would guess, why do you think that the church in the West needs to recover biblical humility? I think right away, the first thing that comes to mind is how polarized we are right now. And, and perhaps the political climate in the States and, and in other places has exacerbated that polarization or maybe caused it, I don't know. But in our polarized place, it's hard for us to have meaningful conversations with each other. We actually have a hard time having fellowship with each other. And I'm talking just to Christians. So I think um, Christians need to learn or lean into this virtue of humility just so we can get along with each other and then tackle what it means to be a witness, a positive witness to our world. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you how and to what extent the church um, in the States has become increasingly polarized because of politics and other things. Well, you know, it's it's been there. It's always been there, I think. But in um, in the last, I don't know, less than 10 years, some of it, you know, maybe in the President Trump era, there's been a very bold kind of pushback to maybe what some people think of as a, as a, I don't know, a liberal, a progressive strand in the church, at least here in the States, in some pockets of evangelicalism. But I would say even in mainline churches, there's been struggles in how do we deal with racial tension in our, in our society, for example. So I, and also questions of human sexuality, like how do we, how do we negotiate what that means for a communal life, right? But, but to even talk about those things has become difficult and and I think we we maybe have a fear or something that keeps us from having meaningful discussions. So humility for me says, you know, we, we need to, you know, kind of lower the temperature a bit and, and, and lean into uh, this virtue. Yes, there seems to be uh, very little um, patience and very little tolerance about these days, I find. For a society that uh, talks about tolerance, it's it's becoming increasingly intolerant. Yeah, I feel so too. And I I mean, it's hard for me to say why. I mean, I'll admit I'm not a sociologist. And so I'm a pastor and, and, a, and a New Testament scholar that watches, tries to pay close attention. But there's, just, there's something about human nature, I guess, that makes it hard for us to be vulnerable, hard for us to to sort of ease back and and receive from others and learn from others 
when we are maybe afraid to get our that we're not going to get our own point across. What is humility, Dennis, and why is it essential for Christians or for anybody? Come to the, come I, to think of that, right? I think it's essential for everyone. Although I do see it as fundamentally a a godly kind of a virtue. I guess you could say that about all virtues, but. For me, it starts as submission to God. That's how I define it. It's it's submission to God that works itself out in um, deliberate acts of peacemaking and mutuality. So I, I try to start there and I try to make a case for it in the book that, that humility isn't first about um, who I think my neighbor is and if my neighbor is worthy of me being gracious and kind to them. It starts with my understanding of who God is and my relationship with God. And out of that relationship, which hopefully grows increasingly more secure and stable and strong, out of that relationship, I'm able to uh, be a peacemaker with my neighbor. What happens, I wonder, when the church or we lack humility? Mm. Well, I think we're seeing it. We're seeing that people who watch the church and look at us would say something else marks uh, or shapes Christian identity and not humility. I mean, I think Christians have been viewed as arrogant, sometimes stingy. I mean, a whole range of terms I think that are negative. And as much as we might look at ourselves and come up with wonderful metaphors for ourselves, oh, we're family, we're, we're uh, this wonderful community. You know, when, when people outside the church look, not, they don't always see those wonderful things. So I would say we, we are we, we need to recover this because it's healthy, it's it's godlike, and it will shape the way we um, interact with those who don't understand the way of Jesus. Yes, and you have a section in your book on, if I can put it like this, what humility isn't. And I love this. Does humility mean rejecting God-given talents and abilities, for example? Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for noticing that. I, my model is, of course, like for any person, I think Christian is Jesus, right? <laughs> so, so when Absolutely. we see Philippians two, Jesus emptying himself or pouring himself out, we never see Jesus not being God or not being, I would even say, knowledgeable, even aware, all the other ways we might think of somebody who's in a situation that's um, he's he's not less than himself, right? But in those situations, he's still able to pour out himself and to um, and to be a reconcil reconciling force. So here, I'll give you one quick example. In Matthew's gospel, we have these two pictures of Jesus. In Matthew 11, he says, look, everybody who's weary, tired, you know, heavy laden, come take take my uh, my yoke on you. Take my burdens easy. Yoke is light. Um, and he says that because he says, I'm humble, I'm lowly low in heart or I'm gentle. Yet that same book shows him fussing at religious leaders who have been hypocrites and says, woe to you, you know. And so he's not holding back, but still is humble because he knows his identity with God. He knows um, what it means to uh, speak up for truth and justice. And I think that's why I say humility is 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 not shrinking back. It's not being that shrinking violet. Yeah. How, how does humility begin with submission to God then? Yes. Yeah, so I use a Moses as an example because the uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 translates that sometimes as meek or humble person. And it seems to be describing his, his relationship to God. God um, sort of champions Moses there and, and denounces 
the criticism of his siblings, Aaron and, and Miriam, and says, look, you know, when I speak to other prophets, I give them dreams and visions. But with Moses, we speak face to face. There's something intimate there. And literally in Hebrew, it's mouth to mouth. We There's this intimacy that's shaped. And, and I'm arguing that that intimacy with God that shows up in other Old Testament passages that talk about the fear of God or repentance, that kind of disposition toward God is what shapes my understanding of who I am. So that's why I say it starts with my relationship to God. And as I yield to God and become more of a disciple <laughs> of Jesus, the more I'm able to um, withstand the pressures of society and still be that reconciling presence in the world. You mentioned re repentance. How, how do we see repentance requiring humility in the Old Testament, for example? Yeah, well, you see it in places where uh, the prophets speak out, but even before we get to the 8th century BCE prophets, um, like the Isaiahs and the Micahs and Amoses, we see it even in um, um, some of the so-called historical books. There's always this sense that God is calling the, the, his people, ancient Israel in this case, to to listen, to be obedient. You see it in the Deuteronomic uh, history, history, like in Deuteronomy, to, to choose life, you know, obey this day. That loving God, serving God, obedience to God, that that is where it all starts. And in that kind of posture, then the community becomes this better witness to the to the world outside. They become this light to the nations, as it were. How is humility in Scripture connected with the fear of the Lord? Hmm. Yes. Now, there's several places. And I thought of the Proverbs particularly where that theme of fear of the Lord comes in. And it's sometimes put in parallel with humility. You'll see it um, in, in places that either equate them or put them in parallel, as I said. The idea is that understanding God, being awed by God, being you know, revering God, all the ways we might describe fear. I don't. I don't think it's always terror, but I do think there's a there's a real um, understanding that that you know God is God and we're not. Right? There's something overwhelming is the word I often talk about or awe inspiring. So when when I understand that it that 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 God is that big, it helps me to see that that I'm not that. That's a good thing, and and now I'm called upon to 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 behave in a certain way that's consistent with my being awed by God. So, yeah, so fear of the Lord is that awe of God, which then puts me in my proper place. You're right to think that some of the most remarkable models of godliness often emerge from among the lowly, and I think that's true. You know, when I think back to folk I've known, um, why is that? Why is that? Why do some of the most remarkable models of God? I mean, I have a picture of a certain Christian man in my mind as I'm speaking yeah. to this, and yeah. uh, he was the most humble character imaginable. Mm. Well, why questions are often hard for me, but I will say that there's this pattern that that God has shown us throughout the scriptures. I've written about this elsewhere. I think about what Paul wrote to the to the Corinthians in in the first chapter, the first letter there. Um, first Corinthians, he says, you know, not many of you were wise by the world's standards. You know, you weren't the noble people. You weren't, you know, the, the flashy ones. That's my paraphrasing. But the point was, God chose what's lowly in the world to confound the wise. That seems we've got strategy throughout. There's, there's this sense that you think God's going to show up. You know, th this is Luke 2, the Christmas story, right? We're coming up on Advent. It's um, you think God's going to show up in the palace, you know, where where Caesar is. But it's in the days of Caesar. He's not showing up in the palace. He's showing up in a manger, you know, and uh, 
So there's this always this pattern that the Lord shows up in what is lowly, humble, what even has been humbled or humiliated in some cases. And there we see God's power most profoundly at work. There's a pattern throughout the scriptures. Yes, he likes to turn the tables on our concept of power, turning, doesn't he? Yes, yes. That's what's so fabulous about him, really. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep quoting bits of your book at you. I do apologize. But um, you write that situations, I love this bit. You write that situations requiring physical labor in church reveal what embodied humility might look like. I think for all of those of those of us who've been in pastoral ministry, how many tables have we carried? How many chairs have we stacked? <laughs> and, and my heart is, and that's one reason why I wanted to mention that. It because even though it seems so mundane, many of us who have served the Lord and don't get you know the opportunity to be on a podcast like I'm getting, or don't get to um, have people know who they are, or get to write a book or something, many of my colleagues have been working such. Oh, I don't know, such at times trying situations, difficult situations, and have been those people setting up the chairs, moving the tables, as you said, all of that. For me, that's that's like Paul saying not to um, to disregard the lowly, he says in Romans chapter 12, so that you can take on these lonely, lowly tasks, associate with, with people we might consider lowly, and that's actually the godly way. So, and I sometimes get a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of an attitude myself of thinking, Lord, why is it that uh, the folks who build these big platforms seem to be immune from, from doing the uh, the grunt work? And I realized, you know, that's I can't speak for why that is. But I know for me, there's something honest and helpful about being the person who's willing to get their hands dirty. I remember a friend telling me about uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher, who was... Um... <laughs> A couple of students went looking for Spurgeon one day. I think it was at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and they came across this gentleman cleaning the floor uh, in the in the foyer. And they said, "Excuse me, sir, we're looking for uh, the, the great preacher Spurgeon." And he said, "Well, you've I don't know about great preacher." He said, "But you found him, <laughs> and he was out <laughs> mopping the floor." Yeah, well, amen. I yeah, I appreciate that. I do. <laughs> it's a wonderful story. Okay, how can churches then embody humility, Dennis? Well, I like that you asked the question churches because I do see it as something that's embodied communally as well as individually. And I want to say that as much as um, Christianity, or maybe I would say more evangelicalism perhaps, is very uh, uh, person-centered, individual kind of centered. But communities can embody humility, especially if we take a posture of listening and not not just selective listening, like listening to the most important people or people we think have power and privilege, but listening to those folks most likely to be uh, disregarded. I once said this in a church, and I said even children are among those who we most likely ignore. We tolerate them, we provide some things for them, but we don't always listen to them. And that church heard that. They actually talked to the student, to the children, before they underwent a pastoral search because they wanted to get a sense of what the children were perceiving the church to be. I thought that was a very good posture because we do tend to to not listen well as communities. So that's a good start for me for how a whole church can embody humility. Mm, and children can teach us so much, and they do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How is humility a key trait for maintaining Christian community during times of <laughs> during times of conflict? Yes. Well, that listening is part of it, but there's also the, um, the way that we worship, the way that we um, have meals together and share life together. Those, those kinds of postures and, and activities 
allow us to build relationships across barriers that that otherwise would separate us. So if we're starting to take our cues from the New Testament or from the scriptures in general, actually, and the way the Lord Jesus operated, we would be less inclined to take our cues from, say, what the political parties are doing or where those political winds are blowing. And we would start to become the trendsetters in terms of how people ought to be treating each other. And we'd be setting these positive examples. So I think, yeah, some of the hows are in our practices that become more, more shared practice. I, you know, I pick on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul is indicting the community for how they were having the Lord's Supper and the meal that went together and how those who had means were, were pushing aside and, and ignoring those who didn't have means to the point that they would eat and get drunk while other people didn't have anything. And he, he's really upset with that. But it's interesting because in that interchange, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them right away and say, hey, don't do this anymore. You know, he stops and says, you know, on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, and he, and he gives this lesson, what we call the words of institution, he takes them back to the Lord's Supper and to get their posture right, and then comes to now, don't um, prevent them or don't um, uh, make it difficult for those who don't have. So, so there's a way of being even in how we eat together. Mm. Yes, indeed, there is. Yes. Now, how does humility help us during times of suffering, I wonder? Well, that's that's difficult. And I wanted to put that in the book because I felt like I wanted to address a broad range of things that we as Christian well, as humans go through. And um, when we're suffering, it's hard for us sometimes to lean into the virtues that we know because we just want the problem to solve itself or to be done with it. But I do think there's something I'm, I've been learning in my own life that rather than always living a life of resistance to the problem, that there's a certain sense that when I'm suffering, I stop and I recognize once again that I'm committed to God and I'm in this submissive posture to God. And I'm not saying that I'm that it's all about learning some particular lesson, but it's about recognizing maybe that that I that I need to depend on someone besides myself. So the humility is I'm leaning into my relationship to God and maybe even into relationships with other people. One of the things that we're taught to be, at least in the States and maybe in the West in general, is to be self-made individuals, do everything by myself. And sometimes when I'm suffering, I need to realize that I can't do it all by myself. So humility is teaching me to depend on God and even to depend on the community of people God brings in my life. Peter talks uh, about um, endurance, doesn't he? And you bring this out uh, when you discuss uh, Peter's letters. I wonder how humility is part of the strategy for endurance that Peter writes about, because I love I love the subject of endurance, how how we endure, and I think you make the point that, and quite rightly, that humility is part of that, part of the way we endure. <laughs> yeah, endurance works. It, it to um, you know, I, I see it in in people like a Job or or other individuals that we might think of who who face these challenges. They 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 were suffering really, and. And humility helps us to lean into the reality that there is more than this moment, right? Um, and if I really believe what I say I believe, then I believe there's something after this life too that that I can look forward to. So I'm thinking really long-term. And if I can sort of get myself to think long-term, that can help me to endure the challenges of life I'm going through now and not give in to the temptation that everything has to be solved very quickly and that every problem does have a quick solution. 
So humility helps me to recognize that God's in charge, that that the spirit of God can give me strength to, ma to manage the issues in my life, and I can think long term. Uh, how can we endure in pastoral ministry for folk listening who are not necessarily pastors, but just doing stuff in their churches and, and going through difficulties in their personal lives? How do we, how do we, or how can we endure? Yeah. You know, deal, dealing with people and situations and limited resources and all those things that <laughs> I shouldn't chuckle. I'm chuckling with a knowing chuckle because it's all stuff I've dealt with, I think about in my lifetime. And, and you know, in the book, I tell a lot of stories, but there's there's this reality that um, some of the pressures, at least for me, when I was in the in pastoral ministry, and now I'm in a school administration, I felt like so much depended on me. It was so much on my shoulders. And, and that can actually be a form of arrogance too, to think that you're so critical to this operation that you have to make everything happen. And 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 humility helps me to see that, no, I, I have a piece in this, but I'm really not the main, I'm not the only cog in this wheel, if you, or whatever the analogy might be. So I can endure, I can, I can persevere, I can deal with the ups and downs of ministry, at least I hope I can, when I start to realize that it's not all about me. And humility helps me see that it's not all about me. There's so many other factors at work. So again, I remind myself of my position with God, that I submit and do and be as faithful as I can to what God has asked of me. I try to nurture good, positive relationships with other people and trust that that's going to help me endure in this ministry and help me to persevere even when it's difficult times. And I've had plenty of them. Mm. Now, I love the bit about church worship and music. <laughs> I chuckle about this one. <laughs> How can we exercise humility when it comes to church worship and music? And oh, brother, do we need to exercise humility when it comes to church there's, worship there's, and music? There's so many arguments over how we, how oh. we worship that I... I, I don't know. I in some ways I've, I I kind of have given up. Maybe because now I'm older <laughs> and and it doesn't doesn't matter as much to me anymore. But but I think that the humility is there was there was something that I was reading in a in a in a commentary. I think it's by Scott McKnight, where he mentioned how oh yes in Colossians where we sing to one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord that he he saw music as having a catechetical function, like like music was actually used to help teach people. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And if that's true, then maybe the humility I could have, even in the way worship is done, is to recognize that there is a teaching function here, that people are learning the faith in how we sing and celebrate the Lord. Now, um, Music, of course, it's a it's a question of taste and styles and preferences. But rather than always giving in to the people who have the most clout, maybe we need to figure out what helps people to hear God better, what helps them to understand God better, and maybe a variety of musical forms, maybe a variety of things helps us. So that's that's just a thought. But my point was to shine a light on there because I think sometimes we just do it not thinking about how people are learning about God. We do it because, oh, it's exciting, or we need this many minutes, or we need to get something up for the crowd, and then we get something down for, you know. So we're thinking about an emotional temperature or something like that. But I also want us to be thinking about what people might be learning in the process, and also who might be getting overlooked in our 
creation of the liturgy. Yes, I had a fascinating experience years ago in our church where I was sitting in front of five uh, Maori guys and uh, tattooed with tattoos, um, big strapping Maori guys. Uh, and uh, the pastor had selected uh, the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, for the last hymn in the service. And I thought, I wonder whether that's going to be a good choice. Will it, will it relate to Will these people be able to relate to it? Well, the music started. These five guys stood up and they sang it all in beautiful harmony. <laughs> they knew it. They knew it off by heart. That's beautiful. And that was yeah. a lesson to me about yeah. uh, about church music. You can never know. Um, yeah, and I it, don't. And admittedly, I don't know what people. I I do know though, having been a planner a lot of times and being an amateur musician, I played my my saxophone and flute in churches a lot, and I've and I've had this experience of us of the group who's in charge, not particularly caring about who's there. It's more of what the, what the team does well and what they feel like they can, what good sound they can make. That's part of it. But I do think there's another piece, right. In terms of who, who we, who we're hoping can enter into this experience. Mm. Yes. All fascinating. Last question, Dennis, I think in what ways is humility empowering? This was probably the hardest, but most important chapter for me in some ways, because do we ask people who are already in the bottom of society to go lower? Are we saying be humble when they're already being humiliated by society? I don't think we do do that. But I do think that there's a power in in taking a posture of dependence. And that's the irony, is that the power we're seeing is a divine power. So if I can take the posture of dependence, then it says that I'm trusting that God. So the theme that runs throughout scripture that says this is that God opposes the proud, that gives grace to the humble. Peter will add, therefore, humble yourselves under God's hand, so in due time, he'll lift you up. So there's this promise that God will strengthen and empower those who willingly take a posture of dependence. So for me, that's that's where my faith really gets tested because I want, I want laws to change. I want systems to change for sure, but I also need to have this posture of dependence on the Lord to give me the power to endure even when things are unjust or out of whack or somehow broken. Mm. Oh, brother, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Dennis Edwards and uh, his new book from IVP America is called Humility Illuminated, The Biblical Path Back to Christian Character. And uh, you'll, you'll find it fascinating. I did. I learned heaps from it. Uh, Dennis, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to, our, thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor our podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Dennis, bless you, brother. Thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.